Brother Robert L. Millett is the Dean of Religious Education and a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He is a gifted teacher and a distinguished doctrinal scholar. Brother Millett was born and reared in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and attended Louisiana State University before serving as a full-time missionary in the eastern states. After his mission, he transferred from LSU to Brigham Young University, where he completed both bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology. He received his Ph.D. in religious studies and psychology from Florida State University. Brother Millett previously worked with LDS Social Services as a counselor and with the Church Educational System as a seminary instructor, institute director, and as a teaching support consultant. He joined the faculty at Brigham Young University in 1983. He is the author of many books and numerous articles, most of which deal with the doctrine and the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brother Millett has served as a member of four stake presidencies, as a high counselor and as a bishop, and as a member of the Church Materials Evaluation Committee. He presently serves as the president of the BYU 14th Stake. He and his wife, Shauna, reside in Orem, Utah, and they are the parents of six children. They also have two grandchildren. Following Brother Millett's devotional address, our benediction today will be offered by Sister Katie Paternoster, a sophomore from Boise, Idaho. Brother Millett. Brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful opportunity. Is that better? That's better. Rising by the minute. It's a wonderful opportunity to be with you. I've had uh, a few occasions to speak around the church over the years. I consider this one to be a, a singular privilege. My wife and I have been well taken care of the last couple of days. We, we hope you appreciate the remarkable leadership you're receiving from President and Sister Bednar and from all of those who lead this unusual and distinctive and uh, great institution we know as Rick's College. About a hundred years ago, a man wrote a book entitled In His Steps. The man was Charles Sheldon. The book became, has become, a classic in Christian literature. It's not what literary minds would necessarily call a, uh, a work of great uh, literature, but it has a wonderful message. It details a story of of a Protestant minister who senses in his own heart the need to become a real disciple of Jesus Christ and to make of the same his congregation. He decides that uh, he will ask himself the question before making any major decision, what would Jesus do? He extends that same invitation to his congregation and asks them to try it for a year. The rest of the book deals with 
some of the challenges of Christian discipleship, what it really means to follow Christ. You see, it's really uh, an easy thing, I think, to say, sure, I'll, I'll do that. I'll ask, what would Jesus do? Until we start thinking about complicated and difficult times like this. Let's suppose you're an editor of a major newspaper. Decisions are to be made. Do I publish a Sunday paper? What do I feature on the front page? How much advertising should go to things like alcohol or tobacco or to entertainment that is questionable? Let's suppose I'm a member of that congregation and I've been blessed with a beautiful voice, a singing voice. I have offers coming to me from all parts of the United States to join this or that particular traveling group. But another offer has come to me from my church, and they need me to stay here and sing for them. And so on and so on. The story goes on and, and again, details the, the matter of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, what's the problem they will eventually face? And for us, what's the situation or problem we'll eventually face? Using the scriptures as their guide, they sought to do everything they needed to do according to what Jesus would do. What's the challenge you eventually face? It is this. We can't detail every move of Jesus. We don't know all that he did. We probably have no more than 30 or 31 days of 33 years in the New Testament. In our case, we have a little more detail in, in the Book of Mormon and some other teachings in the Doctrine and Covenants, but the, it becomes clear that we can't just establish all that we're going to do based upon what we can read in Scripture about what Jesus did. And so it was with that group. We face the challenge today of knowing what would he do. If you have your scriptures, I'm going to go to the Book of Mormon. I'd like to go to 2 Nephi, chapter 31, and we'll sort of let this guide us. This will sort of be our text for the day as we talk about what it means to live a Christ-centered life. 2 Nephi, chapter 31, let's pick up with verse 15. Remember this chapter, this is Nephi talking about the doctrine of Christ. And he's talking about what it means to follow Christ and to follow his example. Verse 15, And I heard a voice from the Father saying, Yea, the words of my beloved are true and faithful. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Now he's going to say something in this next verse about what it really means to endure to the end. And now, my beloved brethren... Sisters, I know by this that unless a man shall endure to the end in following the example of the Son of the living God, he cannot be saved. Now, we've already established that, that one of the key challenges a disciple of Christ has is living his or her life according to what Christ would do. But how do we know what he would do? Well, look over, if you will, to chapter 32. About the middle of verse 3, chapter 32 of Second Nephi, about the middle of verse 3, notice, Wherefore I said unto you, Feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things which ye should do. 
Look at verse 5. For behold again, I say unto you, that if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things which ye should do. The people in that particular congregation in the story, in his steps, soon learned that the only way they could ultimately know what the Lord would do under a given circumstance was to try to live in such a way that the Holy Spirit could guide them. And so it is with us. I would suggest today, brothers and sisters, that a Christ-centered life is a Spirit-filled life. We don't draw close to Christ through spiritual marathons, excessive zeal, trying to be truer than true. We don't draw close to the Savior through seeking in some inappropriate way to establish an unusual relationship with Jesus. We draw close to the Savior through cultivating the Spirit of the Lord in our lives. The third member of the Godhead is given the assignment, among other things, to lead us to the Father and the Son. The Holy Ghost cleanses. He directs. He empowers. And so I say again that I'm persuaded, my dear brothers and sisters, that a Christ-centered life is a Spirit-filled life. May I just make two suggestions for our consideration today on how we might more fully come unto Christ through the Spirit. One, let's, let's discuss them, mention them, and then discuss them in some detail. One, make a commitment to do things His way. Make a commitment to do things His way. And two, Make a commitment to acquire his nature. Make a commitment to acquire his nature. Now let's talk about each of those. A number of years ago, in the 1950s, the, the, the well-known evangelist Billy Graham began a radio program that I, that I have come to appreciate the value of, the good that it did in the world. The name of that program was Day of Decision. I like that. I believe, my dear brothers and sisters, that many of us sometimes try to live our lives waiting for some remarkable thing to happen, waiting for some unusual thing, to, some unusual calling to come to us, and life begins to pass us by. I believe the key to coming to know the Lord and coming close to Him is to make a commitment that I'm going to start today. I'm going to start today. Today thus becomes my day of decision. I was sitting with a young man not too many years ago who was struggling with serious transgression. He had uh, dipped in and out of sin, pretty serious sin. His membership in the church was on the line. I wrestled in my heart with what I could say to get his attention. It was clear that his attention had not been gotten up to now. And so I said to him this, I said, Your salvation is at stake. And then I took a moment and just read this verse, which I know all of us have read many times from the Book of Mormon. 
I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. Therefore, if you will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. Now is the time. If not, why not? If not now, when? Day of decision. One of the questions that immediately arises, I think, when we ask ourselves, when we consider doing things his way, making a commitment to do things his way, is this. What's wrong with doing them my way? What's wrong with uh, just bringing to pass my will? Is that so awful? Let me show you a passage in the New Testament. If you've got your Bible, go with me. Go with me to Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. This is, a, this is a sobering couple of verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Apostle Paul is here writing to the Roman saints about the work of the Holy Ghost. Look at one of the things the Holy Ghost does. We said that the Holy Ghost cleanses, the Holy Ghost directs, the Holy Ghost empowers. Look what else he does. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, what's an infirmity? It's a weakness, isn't it? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The prophet Joseph Smith said that ought to read, with strivings that cannot be expressed. Now think about what he's saying. So often, brothers and sisters, living in a fallen world, we don't see things as they really are. We too often see things as we are. In a very real way, the more messed up I am spiritually the more difficulty I will have seeing things as they really are. Paul is telling us that one of the roles of the Spirit is to help us clarify our values, help us by searching our hearts, and prompt us to pray for the things we ought to pray for. So often we find ourselves getting down on our knees in the morning, in the evening, and uttering a prayer in which we sort of order the Lord around like a kind of cosmic errand boy. And we, and we don't give too much thought to what we're saying. We, bec we become sort of fixated on, on several things that we pray for over and over. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the same things over and over. It's just that if we would allow ourselves occasionally to pause, to reflect, to submit our mind and our will to Him, interesting things can happen. The Lord can begin to make known to us things that we need to pray for so that we're no longer just praying in terms of our wants, but we're praying in terms of our needs. The Spirit does what? It helps us to appreciate things that are deep down within us. Look at verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so one of the things the Spirit does, it brings us unto Christ by helping us clarify 
our values, by helping us clarify our deepest feelings and yearnings. Make a commitment to do things His way. Brother Packer, Elder Boyd K. Packer, in 1976, said something that uh, changed my life. I know you've perhaps heard this. He said to the young people of the church, he said, I decided when I was a young person that I would give to the Lord the one thing I knew he would never take from me, my agency. He said, I thought at the time that I was giving up the most precious thing I could give up. He said, I had no way of knowing at that early age that in so doing, I was really gaining freedom. I was expanding upon my agency. That touched me. About ten years after he gave that talk, I was in a meeting, a priesthood leadership meeting, where, where President Packer retold that principle, retaught it to the priesthood and leaders gathered there that day. And then he said this, he says, Now, my brethren, I would encourage you to do that. Give up your will. Give it to the Lord. It is the one thing he would never take from you. And then Brother Packer, with unaccustomed sternness, said to us, But don't you monkey with this. This is serious business. And it is. In the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, among all the wonderful things contained there is this simple line the Prophet Joseph Smith, under inspiration, wrote, Help us, O Lord, with thy grace assisting us to pray, Thy will be done, and not ours. Elder Maxwell, you'll recall, has said the following. The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things He has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we're really giving something to Him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give our will. Consecration thus constitutes the only unconditional surrender, which is also a total victory. I was touched some time ago when I was rereading the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith and came across this remarkable counsel to you and me. Listen, what's the principle we're operating under here? Make a commitment today to do what? To do things His way, the Lord's way. Listen to what Joseph Smith said. If you wish to go where God is, you must be like God or possess the principles which God possesses. For if we are not drawing towards God in principle, we are going from Him and drawing towards the devil. Search your hearts and see if you are like God. I have searched mine and feel to repent of all my sins. This is the prophet Joseph speaking. Then he says this, As far as we degenerate from God, we descend to the devil 
and lose knowledge, and without knowledge we cannot be saved. And while our hearts are filled with evil and we're studying evil, there's no room in our hearts for good or studying good. And I love this. He says, Is not God good? Then you be good. If he is faithful, then you be faithful. I remember reading several years ago what the noted Christian theologian C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know, there really are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say at the time of judgment, thy will be done. Now, number two. Let us make a commitment to acquire his nature. Many of you have been and will be blessed with remarkable and marvelous gifts and talents and abilities. It must be important to know what the spiritual gifts are, brothers and sisters, because they're given to us in so many places in Scripture. They're contained in Corinthians in the New Testament, the 10th chapter of Moroni, the 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord wants us to know about the spiritual gifts, and we're told that we should seek for them. Those spiritual gifts are interesting, interesting qualities. As given in the New Testament, you recall, the Apostle Paul describes them like the human body. Sister Jones in our ward has the remarkable gift of wisdom. Brother Johnson has a tremendous gift for teaching. Sister Jackson has great discernment, and so on, and so on, and so on. And like parts of the human body, they come together to form a whole. Now, very few people have all of the gifts, but to, to each one of us is given at least one spiritual gift. And so we come together, we come to church, and what do we do? We contribute to the whole in producing the body of Christ, the church. And we draw upon one another's strengths. Those spiritual gifts are interesting in a way, brothers and sisters, because you'll notice that some things just seem to come naturally to you. There's certainly a level of righteousness and faithfulness that's required, but some things just come rather naturally. You don't have to work hard at them. They're just sort of there. Spiritual gifts are given for the good of the church. And there is a sense, I think, in which a spiritual gift is given to you and me almost in spite of ourselves. Why? So we can bless the church. Because when we come together, the Lord draws upon that strength from each one of us. Now let's take Brother Johnson that we mentioned, who has a tremendous gift for teaching. We go to his gospel doctrine class, and he teaches, and when he opens the scriptures, light and truth just flow. People are touched, they're moved, the scriptures come alive, people love being there. Brother Johnson has, it is clear he has, the gift of teaching. The Lord has so endowed him. But we all know Brother Johnson, too, and we know that there are times when Brother Johnson isn't a very nice man. We know that Brother Johnson can be a crotchety old gentleman. We notice that he snaps at people. We notice that Brother Johnson can be downright ornery. We've watched him embarrass his wife. We've watched him respond to people's 
answers in class in humiliating ways. And there are times when we shake our head and say, My goodness, that man is such a good teacher, but he's such a lousy Christian. May I suggest a principle that I believe, if we can understand, would serve us in good stead in growing toward Christ? It is this. It is one thing to have the gifts of the Spirit. And those gifts of the Spirit, again, are given for the good and the blessing of the larger church. It is another thing to enjoy what the Apostle Paul called the fruit of the Spirit. And what, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It is love. It's things like mercy and kindness and gentleness and meekness and compassion. Let me say this another way. To be sure, our friend Brother Johnson has the gift of teaching. The Lord has so blessed him with it. And Brother Johnson is thereby blessing members of the church. The flock is being fed. But it would be a mistake for Brother Johnson to suppose, a serious mistake for him to suppose, that his life is in order and that he's making great spiritual progress because he enjoys that gift of teaching. A greater measure of how Brother Johnson is doing spiritually, a greater measure as to whether he's, he's coming unto Christ, is the degree to which he is embodying and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Another way of saying that is, I'm not growing spiritually, brothers and sisters, unless my heart is being changed, I'm having a religious experience in life, and I'm becoming more people-conscious, more people-centered. If there is anything that could characterize the Savior, may I say it was this, He was willing to be inconvenienced. If there is anything that characterized the Savior, it's that He loved people. He cared about individuals. He lifted souls. It wasn't just that He taught with mighty power. It's that He cared about people. And so one of the evidences that I'm coming unto Christ, and one of the things I hope we'll make a commitment to try to do, is to acquire a Christ-like nature. That doesn't just mean learning a lot of theology. It doesn't just mean that you can explain charity. It means you begin to embody it. You begin to acquire it. You begin to demonstrate it. One morning, a few years ago, I was running late to get to work. I had an early meeting. And I was running behind. And so I was rushing. I came to University Avenue, looked both ways. I had to go, but I looked in the distance and I could see a car coming. And so I had a decision. The decision was, do I try to get out fast enough to get in front of that car or do I wait? And I thought, I'm running behind. So I pulled out and I gunned it. It didn't really matter because I, I drive a Geo Prism. And, uh, <laughs> And therefore, within a matter of, oh, seconds, that BMW was right on my tail. And over the next 30 seconds or so, that person went into a barrage of honking and yelling and screaming that just astounded me. He then pulled around beside me and, and uh, used many interesting gestures and, and, uh, and just screamed and hollered and honked again, for a total of maybe 30, 45 seconds, and he sped off. My first thought was, well, probably just some frustrated high priest group leader. Uh, um, 
My second thought was, you know, you really shouldn't have done that, Bob. You, it, you're, in the, you're in the wrong. You should have waited. You should have exercised a little patience. You, you just ruined that guy's day as well as yours. It's your fault. My second thought was, yeah, but the reaction was so incongruent with the situation. My thought was this. Given where I live, Orem, Utah, the odds are this guy's a Christian. The odds are pretty high he's a Latter-day Saint. I'd say about 96 or 97 percent high. And what began to occur to me then, and it sobered me, I didn't, I didn't feel angry at him, but it sobered me in this way. Do I live in such a way that people can tell I'm a Christian? Do I act in such a way? Elder Marion D. Hanks used to ask a haunting question. He, he liked to ask the question, if you were arrested and were to be tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, the Apostle Paul in, in the fifth chapter of Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this at the conclusion of that little discussion. He said, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, I think that translates into our vernacular as this. If you talk the talk, you ought to walk the walk. We profess, my dear brothers and sisters, to have received a restoration of divine light and truth. We profess, as Latter-day Saints, to have received understanding concerning the Savior of the world that nobody in this world has. But knowledge alone won't save us. We've got to make a commitment, starting today if we haven't already, to not only learn the gospel, but to embody the gospel. We ought to be the gospel. It wasn't just that Jesus taught the truth. He was the truth. It wasn't just that Jesus brought life. He was the life. It wasn't just that Jesus pointed the way. He was the way. And so must it be with us. Let me share with you just a thought from President Howard W. Hunter that always touched me. President Hunter said this, We must know Christ better than we know Him. We must remember Him more often than we remember Him. We must serve Him more valiantly than we serve Him. Then we will drink water, springing up unto eternal life, and will eat the bread of life. President Hunter said, In a world too preoccupied with winning through intimidation and seeking to be number one, no large crowd is standing in line to buy books that call for mere meekness. But the meek shall inherit the earth, a pretty impressive corporate takeover, and done without intimidation. Sooner or later, President Hunter continued, and we pray sooner than later, everyone will acknowledge that Christ's way is not only the right way, but ultimately the only way to hope and joy. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that gentleness is better than brutality, that kindness is greater than coercion, that the soft voice turneth away wrath. In the end, and sooner than that whenever possible, we must become 
more like him. Now that's why that both the Apostle John and the great prophet Mormon said that when we allow charity, the pure love of Christ, to fill our souls, it's not just that we then have great motivation to serve, we do, but it's that, that great it's that, that greatest of all spiritual gifts, charity, the pure love of Christ, begins to transform our soul to such extent that one day when we stand before the Lord, we will see him as he is. In fact, we will see all things as they are because we will have become like him. Now we began by saying that the Christ-centered life is the Spirit-filled life. It is the Spirit that cleanses. Because of the blood of Christ shed in Gethsemane and on Golgotha, it is by the Spirit that we are cleansed, that we are directed, that we are empowered. It's not it's not a little thing to me, brothers and sisters, that of all the things the Prophet Joseph Smith could have said well after his death to Brigham Young, how to get the saints across the plains, how to establish a holy commonwealth in the tops of the mountains, how to make the church and kingdom of God move forward. Of all the things Joseph Smith could have said to Brigham Young, he returned from the dead and said the following, Tell the people to be humble and faithful, and be sure to keep the Spirit of the Lord, and it will lead them right. Be careful and not turn away the still, small voice. It will teach them what to do and where to go. It will yield the fruits of the kingdom. Tell the people to keep their hearts open to conviction, so that when the Holy Ghost comes to them, their hearts will be ready to receive it. They can tell the Spirit of the Lord from all other spirits. It will whisper peace and joy to their souls. It will take malice, hatred, bitterness, strife, and all evil from their hearts. And their whole desire will then be to do good, bring forth righteousness, and build up the kingdom of God. Tell the people if they will follow the Spirit of the Lord, they will go right. Be sure to tell the people to keep the Spirit of the Lord. Of all the things he could have told Brigham Young, that's what he chose to tell him. A colleague of mine was called to serve as a mission president. He felt, he sensed that there was something he ought to try to teach his missionaries that could bring together, distill the essence of the importance of keeping the mission rules so that the missionaries weren't trying to keep track of 50 rules. This is what he taught them. He taught them almost this as a motto. I would never do anything that would keep me from enjoying the full benefits and blessings of the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I bear my testimony, my dear brothers and sisters, that we have an incomparable gift among us. In eternity, eternal life is the greatest of all the gifts of God. But as pertaining to this life, the greatest of all the gifts of God is the gift of the Holy Ghost. I bear my testimony that the way we come unto Christ, the way we develop a Christ-centered life, is through the Spirit of the Lord. It comes as we commit today to do things His way. It comes as we commit today to acquire His nature. I know that the Lord can and will, as we yield our hearts unto Him, make us like unto Him. And for that I pray 
In the holy and sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.